Well, this morning we are continuing our Colossians Bible study called Established in Grace. This is teaching number nine called Redemption, the Forgiveness of Sins. Comes out of Colossians 1, 12 through 14. And Paul writes, Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And that's what I want us to concentrate mostly on today is this phrase that in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But before we do, let's just review briefly why Paul is writing his letter. Uh, Some in Colossae were teaching that there was more knowledge a person needed to grasp if they were to know God. This was the philosophers. They were saying you need deeper knowledge. Some in Colossae were teaching that there were more experiences a person needed to have if they were going to connect with God. This was the spiritualists and the mystics. They were talking about deeper experiences. Some were teaching there were more practices a person needed to perform to be accepted by God. This was the ascetics and legalists talking about deeper commitment. And then number four, there was more forgiveness a person needed to get to be in right relationship with God. This was the Judaizers, deeper forgiveness, more forgiveness, ongoing forgiveness they would teach. Now, what do all these different teachings have in common? They all have in common that Jesus is not enough, grace is not enough, faith is not enough, belief is not enough, the cross and the resurrection is not enough. So all these teachings communicate a message that if believers depend only upon faith in Jesus to know God and only upon faith in Jesus to be in right relationship with him, then we're missing out on something. If we're depending upon Jesus apart from what the mystics were saying or what the philosophers were saying or what the ascetics were saying or the Judaizers or the illegalists, if we depend upon Jesus completely, then they would say, well, you're missing out on something. You don't have all that you need. You're missing out on knowing God fully, they would say. You're, you're missing out on being accepted by God completely. You're missing out on being forgiven by God totally. So Paul writes in his letter to establish the believers in the truths of the gospel of grace. Jesus is enough, he writes. Grace is enough. Faith is enough. Belief is enough. The cross and the resurrection is enough. So Paul wanted to establish the believers more fully in the gospel of grace because they were on the verge of moving away from the gospel of grace. He wanted to establish them more fully in the God of grace because they were about to move away from the God of grace. Look at Colossians 1, 21 through 23. We're going to go through more of this verse in the coming weeks, but Paul writes, he says, once you were alienated from God, there he's talking about the Gentiles, were hostile in your minds because of your evil deeds. But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, unblemished, and blameless in his presence. So we notice here that God is the one who reconciles and the one who presents people holy, unblemished, and blameless in his presence. It's God's work, not our work. We can't present ourselves holy before God. We can't present ourselves unblemished before God. We can't present ourselves blameless before God. 
If we could present ourselves holy, unblemished, and blameless before God, then we don't need Christ's death on the cross. That God, through what Jesus did for us on the cross, is why God is the one who's doing the presenting. We don't present ourselves before God. God presents us before himself, holy, unblemished, and blameless in his presence through what Christ did on the cross. That's the gospel of grace. They were about to move away from this gospel of grace. Remember in Colossians 1, 3 through 8, it was the gospel of grace and understanding the truths of grace that produced faith, hope, love in them that grew them. But because of these teachers, these false teachers and these false teachings that are going on in Colossae, they're about to be persuaded to move away from the God of grace and the grace of God. They're being persuaded by the legalist. They're being persuaded by the spiritualist. They're being persuaded by the ascetics. They're being persuaded by the philosophers and the Judaizers and the mystics to move away from the work of Christ on the cross and the person of Christ. So Paul says, if indeed you continue in, some version says your faith, but the word your isn't in the Greek language. If you continue in the faith, meaning the gospel of grace, and he defines that here. If you continue in the faith, and then he writes, what does he mean by continue? Established and firm. If you continue in the faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope of the gospel you heard. That's the faith. The faith is the gospel that you heard, and that gospel produces hope. So they were in danger of moving away from the gospel of grace. Paul says, if you continue or if you you remain established and firm in the faith, the gospel of grace, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So Paul was a servant of the gospel of grace. He served the gospel to people, the gospel of grace. You can read about that in Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Acts 26, 15 through 18, Acts 20, 24, Galatians 1, 6 through 12. The whole book of Romans is Paul serving the gospel of grace to people, teaching it to people. Ephesians, Paul is teaching the gospel of grace to people. So Paul was a servant in proclaiming this gospel of grace. And in doing so, he suffered greatly. He suffered physically greatly. And we'll look at this in later studies. He suffered religiously from the persecution that he was under from many of the Judaizers and those back in Jerusalem and the Jew, many of the Jewish leaders of the day were after Paul and plotting against Paul, much like they did against Jesus. So Paul suffered greatly as he served the gospel of grace to people. He suffered greatly as he strengthened people in the gospel of grace. And you can read about just the suffering that he experienced in serving grace to people, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 10, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28, Paul uh, expounds on the suffering that he endured as he shared grace with people. But Paul says in Colossians 1, 24 through 27, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, that I'm willing to suffer to share the grace of God with you. I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my flesh that, that my, my body is taking a beating. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So Paul is ministering to the church, the family of God's grace, the family of God, those who come to faith in Christ. 
and he wanted to fulfill, he wanted people to understand all that Jesus did for them and the sufferings that Jesus took upon himself, which is the grace of God. It's, it's what God has done for us in Christ. He wanted to mature people, to grow people in what Christ had done. Paul said, I became its, that's the churches. I became its servant by the commission God gave me to fully proclaim to you the word of God. That's the gospel of grace in its fullness. The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. And we're going to look at this verse in depth later on in our later studies. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so the main point I want us to see here is that that Paul was desiring to establish the church in Colossae more fully in the gospel of grace, because those who are teaching other doctrines and other religious systems spiritual systems were seeking to persuade the people to walk away from the work of Jesus on the cross, the grace of Jesus, to walk away from the grace of God, to walk away from the God of grace, and to embrace these other teachings. And so Paul was really passionate about helping the church, those who've come to faith in Christ, grow in their understanding of the gospel. Look what Paul writes in Colossians 1, 28 through 29. We proclaim him, Jesus. That's who Paul proclaimed. We proclaim Jesus. We proclaim his cross. We proclaim his blood. We proclaim his resurrection. We proclaim Christ in you, the hope of glory, and so much other beliefs that he proclaimed. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We see the importance of a teaching ministry within a local church. It's so important to have a teaching ministry. We proclaim Jesus admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect or mature or fully established in Christ and what he's done. To this end, I also labor, striving with all of his energy, working powerfully within me. And so Paul's heart was for the church. Paul wanted the church to be established in the fullness of the grace of God and in the God of grace and in the work of Christ and the person of Christ and what he did for them and Christ in them. He wanted them to come to understand that the, that the life of a believer is lived from the presence of Christ indwelling our hearts. We live based upon Christ in us, which is what Paul was wanting to teach. Colossians 2, 1 through 3, we see more of Paul's heart for the church and him wanting to establish the church in truth. For I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me face to face, that they may be encouraged in heart, knit together in love and filled with the full riches of complete understanding. So Paul, as a teacher, wanted to help believers come to a place of complete understanding of what God had done for us in Christ so that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, or who is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, or everything we want to know about God is in the person of Christ. And that's what Paul was saying and wanted, wanted to teach the believers in Colossae. Not, every, not only everything do we know about God is in Christ, but how we relate to God is completely in Christ. So we see in these verses that as a servant of the gospel of grace, which was the commission given to him by God and assigned to him by the ascended Jesus, Paul went through many struggles to strengthen or to establish the church in grace. He endured much to establish the church in grace. In Colossians, he writes to establish the people in the person of Jesus 
and the work of Jesus. Because these false teachers and these false teachings are trying to get them away from the God of grace and the grace of God. In Colossians 2.10, Paul writes, and you have been made complete in Christ. The Judaizers would say, no, Christ isn't enough. The spiritualists would say, Christ isn't enough. The legalists would say, Christ isn't enough. The mystics would say, Christ isn't enough. The philosophers would say, Christ isn't enough. And Paul is saying, yes, Jesus is enough. You are complete in Christ. You're not missing out on something. If you have Christ, you have everything you need to be in right relationship with God and to be close to God and to grow in your relationship with God. So we are complete. Jesus is completely God. If you know Jesus, you know God. The meaning of life is found in the person of Jesus. You are loved by God. You're completely forgiven and accepted by him through faith in Jesus. These are some of the things that Paul wanted the Colossian people to know about. Now I want to move to redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What did Paul mean when he said that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? So in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, Paul begins talking about the Father's beloved Son and what the Father has done for us through His Son. And Paul writes in these verses, Joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. So He's qualified us. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His Son. So He's rescued us. He's qualified us. He's rescued us in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and he's forgiven us. That's why we give thanks to the father. He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the source of joy. So what do we learn in these verses about what the father has done for us through the Son. Well, first we learn that we have been rescued from the dominion or the power of darkness, which is what Jesus initially sent Paul into the Gentile cities to do. And we read about that in Acts 26, 15 through 18, when Jesus sends Paul into the Gentile cities to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God by receiving the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. So when a person receives forgiveness and is sanctified in that same verse by faith in Jesus, then we're rescued from the power of darkness. We're rescued because we've come to faith in Christ. We've been forgiven fully by what Christ has done. We've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. So what is the, what is the dominion of darkness that we've been rescued from? So Paul was sent by Jesus into the Gentile cities. And we, for example, in Acts 13, 47, we see Paul declaring that Jesus had sent him into Gentile cities as a light, to be a light to the Gentiles, Acts 13, 47. So the Gentiles were living in the dominion of darkness under the power of Satan, which means they did not know God. They had no knowledge of who God was. They had all these false idols and uh, demonic idols that they were worshiping. So they were in the darkness. They didn't know God. They didn't know the truth about God. They were trying to earn or merit forgiveness from God. 
They were trying to earn the love of God. They were trying to earn acceptance with God. They were trying to connect with God. They were trying to perform for God. If you look at all the religions of the world, that's the dominion of darkness. Because all the religions of the world, they're seeking to connect with a false God. They don't know the truth about God. They don't know the truth about Jesus. They're trying to merit something with this God. They're trying to earn something with this God. They're trying to earn acceptance. They're trying to connect. They're trying to perform. They're trying to reach this God. Whereas what we discover in the gospel is God has reached down to us in Christ. God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. These false gospels are people trying to present themselves before this false God as acceptable, as holy, as good enough, as disciplined enough, as working hard enough. Christianity is the very opposite. God has reached down to us. God has reconciled himself to us. God is the one who's presenting us to himself as holy and blameless without accusation because of what Jesus has done for us. It's the very opposite. So we've been rescued from this dominion of darkness. We've been rescued from trying to earn God's acceptance. We've been rescued from trying to earn the love of God. We've been rescued from trying to connect with God. We've been rescued from trying to perform for God. We've been rescued from trying to merit the forgiveness of God. We've been rescued. That's a demonic system that says you have to earn forgiveness. You have to earn his love. You have to earn his acceptance. You have have to connect with God. You have to perform for God. That's a demonic, dark religious system that you and I have been rescued from through the Father and what he's done for us through the Son. Not only has the Father through the Son rescued us from the dominion or the power of darkness, which is what Jesus sent Paul into the Gentile cities to do, but we have also been brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We learn in these verses that the Father through the Son has qualified us being members of the kingdom of the Son he loves, the kingdom of light, that in the kingdom of Jesus we are You don't earn the love of God. In the kingdom of Jesus, you don't earn the forgiveness of the Father. In the kingdom of Jesus, we don't merit anything with the Father. In the kingdom of Jesus, it's not about our performance or our work or our effort or our discipline or our commitment or our deeper knowledge. It's about what Jesus has done for us. And we're relating to God through what Jesus has done for us. So we learn in these verses that the Father through the Son has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. We're in the light now. So what does it mean that we share in the inheritance of the saints in the light? What is the light? Well, the light is we know the truth about God. We know the truth that God loves us. We know the truth that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ to present us holy and blameless and without accusation. We know the truth that it's the blood of Christ that cleanses from all sin. It's what Christ has done for us. We, the truth is we don't merit anything. We don't work for anything. There's no performance. There's no effort to try to make ourselves acceptable to God or bring ourselves into right relationship with God. If there's any effort required, then we don't need Jesus. The fact that Jesus had to go to the cross and die for us on the cross to reconcile us to God means we can't reconcile ourselves to God. He has done it for us. And by faith, 
we receive what he's done. And we're, we're now in relationship with God because of what Christ has done. So the light that we are now inheritance of is we know the truth about what, God, about what Christ has done for us. What is an inheritance? We're in this, these verses, an inheritance is that we have been freely given God's love. We've been freely given God's acceptance. We've been freely given God's forgiveness in the person of Christ. Talks about inheritance, our inheritance in the saints. An inheritance is something somebody else works for, but that we get for free. We talked about this uh, last week or a few weeks ago. An inheritance is simply because of the bloodline that we're in or the family line that we're in, that we're going to receive something when somebody else dies. So that because Jesus has died for us, we're now the inheritance of what his death purchased for us. Acceptance with God, forgiveness by God. We're already loved by God, but through Christ, we're accepted and we're forgiven fully. That's our inheritance. We have eternal life. That's our inheritance. Now, what is a saint? The, the inheritance of the saints in the light. A saint, the saints are those who have placed their faith in Jesus and are now holy and blameless before him. It goes back to Acts 26, 18, that through faith in Jesus, we receive forgiveness and we are sanctified. Sanctified means that God has declared us to be holy. God has declared us to be cleansed from sin completely and forever, that we stand before God holy, we stand before him blameless, we stand before him forgiven, we stand before him without accusation. That's what a saint is. So as, in, as saints, we inherit God's love. I remember watching a Muslim girl probably a year or so ago give her testimony. And in her testimony, she said, what I discovered in, in the person of Jesus and in the truth of Christianity, is that I don't have to work for God's love. I don't have to perform for God's love, which was totally different than what she had been taught in Islam. That really one of the things that drew her to Christianity and drew her to Christ was God so loved the world. That in Christianity, we don't try to earn or merit God's love by practicing or observing religious disciplines religious observations, following a calendar, following a clock, that God loves us, period. And because he loves us, he sent Christ for us. That's one of the major differences between Christianity and the religions of the world. We are loved by God and he comes to us. He reconciles himself to us. He reaches down to us. So as saints, we inherit God's acceptance. We don't work for it. We don't merit acceptance. We inherit acceptance. We inherit God's forgiveness. We don't merit God's forgiveness. We inherit God's forgiveness. One is about working and the other one's about resting. We rest in the fact that we're accepted. We rest in the fact that we are forgiven in Christ. So we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. We've been brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. So what else do we learn in these verses about what the Father has done for us in the Son? Well, we learn that we have forgiveness, the redemption of sins. Let's read this verse one more time. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, 
He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of his, of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So as believers, you and I live in the kingdom of the forgiven. The kingdom of the son he loves is the kingdom of those who are forgiven. We can't live in the kingdom of God if we're not forgiven by God. We can't live in the, the, the kingdom of the Son if we're not forgiven by the Son. In order for us to live in the kingdom, you have to be forgiven. So because we live in the kingdom of the beloved Son, we are forgiven, in whom we have redemption. It's ours. We possess forgiveness. So after the blood of Christ was shed on the cross, forgiveness is no longer a process. Forgiveness is something we possess. Before the blood of Jesus was shed on the cross, forgiveness was a process. You can read about it in Leviticus. After Jesus died on the cross for our sins, forgiveness is something we possess completely and fully. And that's a major distinction to understand, which we're going to look at shortly. Now, what is redemption? Redemption means to purchase by paying a price. So Jesus purchased our forgiveness by paying the price for our sins. We sing that a lot in, you know, I sung it a lot growing up in the church I attended. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Um, it's in many of the songs that are even written today, the full price that Jesus paid for our sins. So that's what redemption is. Redemption, we have redemption. We have the full payment for our sins at the cross. Now remember, Paul is communicating these truths to people who are trying to reconcile themselves to God, who are trying to merit something before God, who are trying to earn something from God, who are trying to go through a process of works, a process of obtaining something, a process of maintaining something. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. God has qualified you. God has rescued you. God has brought you into. God has given you forgiveness through the redemption or through the payment that has come through the cross of Jesus. So redemption is Jesus paid the full price for our sins. Jesus purchased our forgiveness by paying the full price for our sins. And Jesus purchased our freedom by paying the price, the full price for our sins. When he went to the cross, when he shed his blood, we've been freed from the penalty of death, which now we have eternal life in Jesus. We've been freed from the prison of darkness. We, have, uh, we live in the kingdom of light. Jesus did all this for us. And that's what Paul is, is warning the believers to know. Quit trying to work for what God has given you for free. Quit trying to qualify yourself to be accepted by God. Quit trying to qualify yourself to be forgiven by God. Quit trying to qualify yourself. God has qualified you through the work of Christ through what Christ has done, through the cross of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, through the death of Christ. And what these people and these false teachers are trying to get you to do, they're trying to get you to move away from the gospel of grace. They're trying to get you to move away from the God of grace to a system of works, to a system of effort, to a system of where you're trying to obtain through your own works and through your own effort, through deeper knowledge and deeper commitment, and deeper levels of forgiveness. It's, it's no Jesus. You're complete in Jesus. 
And because you're complete, there's nothing left for you to do because the Father has qualified you through the work of the Son. Now, when did redemption happen? Redemption happened when Jesus shed his blood for our sins. When did the full payment for our sins happen? Ephesians 1, 6-8 gives us some insight. To the praise of his glorious grace. Look how Paul, is, it's, it's his glorious grace. It's God's glorious grace. To the praise means to speak highly of. Paul said, I, I speak highly of God's amazing, wonderful, marvelous grace. And this grace he has freely given us in the beloved one, in Jesus. So the grace that you and I have received is free to us. And look what he says, what part of this grace is. In Jesus, we have redemption, the full payment of our sins through his blood. And because our our sins have been fully paid for through the blood of Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. That when you place your faith in Jesus, you receive forgiveness. Well, how much forgiveness? Well, how much of God's for, how much forgiveness did the blood of Jesus pay for at the cross? Well, the blood of Jesus at the cross paid for 100% of our forgiveness. So how much of God's forgiveness do we receive when we place our faith in Jesus? 100% of God's forgiveness, which means God is not on an ongoing process of forgiving our sins. If more sins needed to be forgiven, then Jesus would have to come back and die on the cross again. And we'll look at that momentarily. I was taught, yes, you are forgiven, but you still need to seek forgiveness. Well, that makes no sense, logically. But that's what most people, most believers are taught. They'll sing a hymn on Sunday morning that Jesus paid it all. But on Sunday night, they hear a message that you need to come down to the altar and ask God to forgive you. Altars and churches is not where our sins are forgiven. The altar is the altar of the cross. Paul writes about that in Hebrews chapter 12. It's from his altar where his blood was shed that God has given us forgiveness. God is not in the forgiving business anymore. He's reaching out to people. He's saying, my forgiveness has been purchased for you through Jesus, the redemption of your sins through the blood of Jesus. Will you receive this through faith in my son? The father's done all the work. And we receive forgiveness as an inheritance when we trust in Christ. We believe it to be true. So redemption comes through the blood of Christ in whom we have the forgiveness of our sins. This is Ephesians 1, 6 through 8. According to the riches of his grace that he's lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You and I are forgiven. We've been lavished upon us forgiveness fully, completely forgiven. Look in Romans 3, 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from works, apart from effort, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So what Paul is saying here, propitiation is Jesus paying the full penalty for our sins through the cross. His blood propitiated our sins. His blood paid the price for our sins. 
how many of our sins did his blood pay the price for? Propitiated all of it, completely all of it. So the blood of Jesus is where you and I find complete forgiveness. First Peter 1, 18 through 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or spot. So the precious blood of Jesus here refers to a lamb without blemish or spot that redeemed us from the empty way of life that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because of the blood of Christ, you, our lives now have meaning. Our lives now have purpose. All right. But what I want us to focus on here is the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or spot. Look what John says in John 1 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When did the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world? Not while he was living, but when he shed his blood on the cross. When his body was sacrificed, when his blood was shed, that's when the sin of the world was taken away because the sin of the world was taken to the cross. John writes about this in 1 John chapter 2. Jesus' blood is the propitiation for the world's sins, for all of our sins. And our sins were taken to the cross of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus paid our sin payment at the cross, which was death. Look at what Hebrews 9.12 says about the blood of Christ and redemption. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now, we know that redemption is the full payment of our sins, resulting in the complete forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness through the blood of Jesus is eternal. Jesus through the blood of Jesus is forever. God is not in the process of forgiving sins day by day. He's not dishing out forgiveness as we confess each individual sin every day for the rest of our lives. That's not what God's doing here. We have obtained through faith in Christ and his blood shed on the cross, eternal redemption, because that's what Jesus went to the cross to do, eternal redemption. Remember, we're looking at Colossians, says that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through Christ. So if we have redemption, how long do we have redemption? How long do we have forgiveness? It's an eternal redemption. It's eternal forgiveness. When we receive forgiveness, we receive complete forgiveness, forever forgiveness. Let's look at this verse in context to understand it a little bit more. Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 says, Now the first covenant, if you would, if you want to take notes or you're taking notes, right above the word covenant, the word testament. It's the exact same Greek word. There's not one word for covenant and one word for testament. It's simply now the first covenant or the first testament, the King James Version uses testament all the way through. Other verses might use the word covenant, but it's still the same Greek word. Now the first testament 
our covenant. That's the law of Moses. That's what we see in Exodus. That's what we see in Leviticus. That's what we see in Deuteronomy. That's the first testament. That's the first covenant. Had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. You can read about that in the, in the end of Exodus, talking about the tabernacle that was set up on earth, the temple. It started off as a tent, and then it went to becoming a temple that Solomon built. For the first covenant had its regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. Again, he's talking about the end of Exodus. He's talking about Leviticus. He's talking about uh, Deuteronomy. And in its first room of this earthly sanctuary were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. That was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. And that's the curtain that the, when Jesus died on the cross, that was torn in two. All right. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant or the testament. The Ten Commandments were in the most holy place. All right. They were behind the curtain in the most holy place. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. That's the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim of, of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now, Paul wrote. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room, that's the holy place, to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, that's the most holy place, and that only once a year, that's the day of atonement, when the sins that had not been paid for during the year, all the unknown sins that people had committed that they didn't know they had committed, that God took all the sins that had not been sacrificed for, during, uh, for the Jewish people during the year, and on the day of atonement, an animal was sacrificed for those sins. And then the blood of the animal was taken into the most holy place. And that was only once a year and never, this is key, you guys, and never without the shedding of blood. Forgiveness required the shedding of blood because blood signifies death. And look, under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, forgiveness was ongoing. They were always for another sin that needed to be sacrificed for, another sin that needed, an animal needed to die for. A sin can never be covered unless an animal died first, never without blood. All right, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and there only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. So the, before a, pre, a high priest could go into the, the most holy place, not only did he have to sacrifice an animal for the sins of the people, but he had to sacrifice an animal for his own sins. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that Jesus did not have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he had no sins. He was the animal. He was the high priest. He was the altar. He is the entire system wrapped up in one person. Everything points to Jesus. That's why all those things are a shadow of Jesus. So the high priest, back under the first covenant, the first testament, offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. That's why we know that the Day of Atonement was for the sins of people that they committed that they had no idea they committed. 
All right, so that's what the Day of Atonement was for, for unknown sins. All the other sacrifices before the Day of Atonement were for known sins. But the Day of Atonement was for unknown sins because God knows all sins. Even though I may not know all my sins, God knows all my sins, and sins bring death. And that's why if we have to individually confess every sin to be forgiven, good luck. I mean, we've committed sins in ignorance. We have unknown sins. Look what this says. Now, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Now, this most holy place, he's talking about heaven itself, the most holy place, the real dwelling place of God, had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle, that's the temple that Solomon built, that's the tent that we see that Moses had constructed, as long as that old covenant, that Old Testament tabernacle was still functioning, we didn't really have access to God in the real most holy place, heaven itself. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating present time being when the, when the writer of Hebrews wrote this book, not this present time, but that present time. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered back during when the first tabernacle was set up, when the temple was set up and all the sacrifices were, were happening. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. He's talking about the old covenant of the law of Moses here. He's talking about the Old Testament of the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus. These are external regulations applying, and here's what I want us to see. Applying until the time of the new order. What's the new order? It's the blood of Christ. It's the New Testament. Not books, but the blood of Christ shed for the sins of people. This new way God's going to relate to us. So when we hear the word new order or new testament, we can't think in terms of the book of Matthew and the book of Mark and the book of, we've got to think cross. When you hear new testament, you've got to think blood of Jesus shed for my sins. That's the new testament. The new testament is not about books. Again, it's about blood. And the old testament was in effect until the New Testament went into effect through the blood of Jesus at the cross. That's the new order. Jesus established the New Testament or the new covenant. It's the same Greek word. When he died on the cross for our sins, when his blood was shed, that's when the New Testament went into effect. That's when this new way of relating to God went into effect. That's when our sins were propitiated for. That's when the Lamb of God shed his blood so that our sins could be fully and forever and completely forgiven, all right? When that, the New Testament or the new way God related through pe to people through the blood of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 26 through 28, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks for it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. He took a cup, gave thanks and gave to them saying, all of you drink it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, or new this is my blood of the New Testament. When did redemption happen? Remember, redemption 
through the blood of Jesus, Ephesians 1, 6 through 8, that the full payment for our sins took place at the cross of Jesus, that while Jesus was living, redemption hadn't happened yet. Redemption didn't happen until we get to Matthew 26. So before Matthew 26, redemption has not taken place. The blood of Jesus has not been shed. The Old Testament is still in effect in Matthew 25. Only when Jesus sheds his blood on the cross does the New Testament go into effect. That's why it's important that we can't see the New Testament as a collection of books, but we have to see the New Testament as the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus on the cross for our sins, our full forgiveness. We have the forgiveness of sins through the redemption of Jesus, which came through his blood. So Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant or the new Testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus's blood had not been poured out prior to Matthew 26. So according to the Bible, what testament are we under in Matthew 25? The Old Testament. 24, the Old Testament. Why? Because they're still relating to God in the old order of things. The new order had not come yet. This new way of relating to God had not come yet. The the veil in the temple was not torn in Matthew chapter 25. The veil in the temple separating the holy place from the most holy place was torn after Jesus died on the cross. Very important if we're going to understand our Bibles is to make those distinctions. Look what Jesus says in Luke twenty two nineteen through 20. Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is, he's talking about his death on the cross. The cup is his death on the cross. This cup is the new covenant or the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for you. Oh, isn't that good news, you guys? The blood of Jesus was poured out for you, for your forgiveness. You and I live in the New Testament. That doesn't mean we live in Matthew 1 or Matthew 2 or Matthew 3. We live in this New Testament, this forgiveness that is completely ours in Christ. We are forgiven. We have the redemption of sins. We live in the kingdom of the son he loves, the the kingdom of the forgiven. Look how uh, the King James Version, look at this, Luke 22, 20. Likewise, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Look, the book of Matthew wasn't even written yet when Jesus said these words. So how can the New Testament refer to a collection of books when the collection of books weren't weren't even written when Jesus said these words? Jesus is not referring about books of the Bible when he utters New Testament here. He's saying that the old law of Moses where forgiveness was ongoing through the blood of animals being sacrificed day after day after day in the the year of atonement, once a year for the sins that weren't sacrificed for during the other part of the year, that system is now gone. And a new, a new system has come, if we want to say that. And this new system is actually a savior. We relate to God through the blood of Jesus, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, the redemption of our sins, which we now have the forgiveness of sins, all of it. Look at Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. But when Christ came as high priest, the final high priest, 
of the good things that are now already here. You know what those good things are? The new covenant, the new Testament, complete forgiveness, complete righteousness, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's the good things. So when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, Jesus went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem into the temple built by Solomon. I mean, he didn't go into the holy place and then behind that curtain into the most holy place. The more perfect tabernacle is heaven itself. The dwelling place of God is not Jerusalem, it's heaven. Look at this. Jesus went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. It's not on earth. Jesus did not enter the dwelling place of God, the presence of God, by means of the blood of goats and calves. That's how they did under the old order, the old system, the law of Moses, the Old Testament. Jesus entered the most holy place. Jesus went right into the very presence of God in heaven once. You might want to circle that. It's so important. Once. The priest would go over and over and over and over, year after year after year after year, to get forgiveness for the people of Israel. We don't get forgiveness from God day after day and year after year. We have God's forgiveness once and for all through the blood of Christ because this redemption or this forgiveness is an eternal redemption, which this is what this means. When Jesus shed his blood one time for all people, for all sins, it reached back into the past and took care of all sins in the past, and it reached completely into the future took care of all sins in the future. That's why it's eternal redemption and eternal payment. The sins you, you and I commit tomorrow already paid for by the blood of Christ. It's an eternal payment. All right. It's an eternal forgiveness. This is such good news, you guys, isn't it? He obtained for you and I eternal forgiveness because his payment was eternal. Look at Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one. Jesus entered heaven itself. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem to the temple. He went into heaven itself. Why did Jesus, with his blood, go into heaven itself? Look at this. Now to appear for us in God's presence. The most holy place is heaven. The most holy place is the presence of God. And Jesus entered into the most holy place with his blood. He says this, nor did Jesus enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Look, if there was more forgiveness that needed to be gained for you and me, then Jesus would every single day have to go to the Father and say, will you forgive Brad for his sins that he's confessed today? And then once a year, he would have to go and say, Father, Brad forgot about some sins. He, he missed some sins during the year. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is forgive Brad for all the sins he committed in ignorance during the year. That's not the New Testament. The New Testament is this. Jesus with one sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all time. 
died on the cross and his blood was shed, ushering in the New Testament, not books, but a new way of relating to God. And he appeared for you in God's presence. He appeared for Cindy. He appeared for Gail. He appeared for Sherry and Roy, for Mark. He appeared for Joanne and Lois and all the ones who are on here for us. Jesus appeared for you to say what? To do what? I died for Joanne's forgiveness. I died for Gail's forgiveness. I died for Dan and Nancy's forgiveness. All of it, completely, forever, totally, eternal redemption and eternal forgiveness. So Jesus didn't enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. The high priest entered into the holy place in Jerusalem with the blood of animals. Jesus entered into heaven itself with his own blood for you and for me. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. If more forgiveness needed to be granted from God to us, Jesus would have to daily die for the sins of people. It would mean his first death didn't cover all sins. It only covered sins up to a point. But it's eternal redemption. Jesus is not dying over and over for the forgiveness of sins. If he was, it says otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But Jesus has appeared once before the Father, in the Father's presence, with his blood, and on this earth to pay our sin penalty. Jesus has appeared once for all. That's for every one of us. At the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin, the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sin of the world, to take away sin the penalty for sin, the payment of sin through the sacrifice of himself. Look what Revelation 1.5 says. To Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's redemption. You and I have been freed from our sins. We've been freed from the penalty of our sins because Jesus redeemed us. He, he purchased our freedom from the penalty of our sins, which is death. Look at Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song. This new song that they're singing is directly related to the new covenant. We want to sing new covenant songs. We want to sing New Testament songs. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's redemption. The blood of Jesus purchasing for us forgiveness so that we could be in relationship with God. He purchased for God through his blood persons from every tribe, language, and people and nations. So let's go back real quick to Colossians 1, 19 through 14. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now we know, boy, why can I joyfully give thanks to the Father? Because of what Jesus has done for us through his blood. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the eternal payment for our sins through the blood of Christ. This is called the new Testament. This is called the new covenant, which Jesus talked about in Luke 20 and in Matthew 26. So what is forgiveness that we have? Well, God no longer counts our sins against us because they were all counted against Jesus at the cross. 
God no longer holds our sin against us because they were all held against Jesus at the cross. We no longer have a sin debt because Jesus fully paid our sin debt through his blood. That's what it means to be forgiven. We are completely, fully, forever forgiven. Our sins are not being counted against us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old, talking about the Old Testament, has gone within context. The old law of Moses is gone. The New Testament or the new covenant or what Jesus has done for us on the cross has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Why is God not counting our sins against us? Because Jesus paid an eternal redemption. Jesus paid an eternal payment. All of our sin debt was counted against Christ, and he paid it in full for us. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is the message. This is what we want to share with the people of the world. Because what are the people of the world trying to do? They're trying to earn God's acceptance. They're trying to earn God's forgiveness. They're trying to merit what in Christ they inherit. So we want to get this good news out to the people of the world. Look at Hebrews 8, 1 through 13, talking about the new, the new Testament or the new covenant in the blood of Christ. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant or the first Testament, that's the law of Moses, the end of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, no place would have been sought for another covenant. This is the new Testament in the blood of Jesus. But God found fault with the people. The problem wasn't with the law of Moses. The problem of the people couldn't obey the law of Moses and the law of Moses couldn't forgive sins completely and eternally. So a new covenant was established in the blood of Jesus. The days are coming, declares the Lord. These days are already here. When I will make a new covenant or a new testament, when did that happen? Matthew 26 and Luke 20. God made a new covenant and new testament. Again, it's not books. It's the blood of Christ. For in the new testament, in the new covenant, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That's the good news, you guys. God's not counting our sins against us anymore because they were all counted against Christ. Or the writer of Hebrews ends this by saying, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. That was written. That was back during the time when Hebrews was written. And it's obsolete and it's outdated and it's gone now because Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. That whole system uh, was destroyed. Look, in Hebrews 10, 17 through 18, again, it talks about the New Testament and what happened in the New Testament or when Jesus shed his blood for our sins at the cross. It says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these sins have been forgiven, what? We have forgiveness. We have redemption. Where these sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. God has fully forgiven the sins of people through the blood of Christ. There is no more forgiveness that God is handing out to people. Let me me put it this way. God is handing out his forgiveness to people, but there is no more forgiveness that needs to be secured. Forgiveness is complete in Christ. God is handing this complete forgiveness out to people, and by faith we receive this. We, We participate in the new covenant. We participate in the New Testament by faith. 
And we believe that, yes, God is not counting my sins against me. God remembers my sins no more because this is the testament that you and I live in, the, the blood of Christ. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. That's the New Testament. That's the new covenant. That happened when Jesus shed his blood at the cross. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. That means we're not guilty anymore, which stood against us and condemned us. God has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, remember, what what did John say? The Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Where were our sins taken to? They were taken to the cross, and they were nailed to the cross. How many of our sins were taken to the cross and nailed to the cross? All of our sins were taken to the cross and nailed to the cross. And when you and I receive by faith this forgiveness, we receive complete. We, he forgave all of our sins. So there's no more ongoing forgiveness. There's, we are forgiven people. Colossians 3.13 Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We are forgiven of all sins. Now, here's a question I want us to ask. Is there a difference in forgiveness before and after the cross? Is there a difference between forgiveness before the blood of Jesus was shed and after the blood of Jesus was shed? Is there a difference before the New Testament was put into effect and when the old covenant was in effect? Is there a difference in forgiveness? And the obvious, obvious answer is yes. Before the cross, forgiveness is conditional. After the cross, forgiveness is complete. Before the cross, forgiveness is a process. After the cross, we possess forgiveness. Before the cross, people ask for God's forgiveness. After the cross, we accept God's forgiveness. God's the one doing the asking after the blood of Christ was shed. Will you receive my forgiveness? That's grace. He's freely offering us forgiveness. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, when we study Scripture, when Jesus says, unless you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins, that forgiveness there is conditional, correct? Well, what covenant did Jesus say those words under? The Old Covenant, the Old Testament. When did the New Testament go into effect? Not during the life of Christ, but with the death of Christ. So that's just one of the ways it's so important that you and I get a grasp on that the New Testament is not a collection of books, but it's the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus on the cross where all of our sins are forgiven. And if we're going to rightly divide Scripture and interpret Scripture, then we've got to know the differences in the covenants and the differences in the testaments and and that the blood of Jesus was not shed when the Lord's Prayer was spoken. So the good news of this, you and I are completely forgiven in Christ. You're not missing out. You don't have to measure up. There are no expectations to meet. There are no experiences to have. There are no practices or disciplines to follow. There is no deeper level of commitment. There is no deeper level of knowledge. There is no deeper experiences to have. There is no more forgiveness to get. You are complete in Christ. What he did for you and has done for you and me is full and it's final and it's finished. 
you're completely loved by the Father. You're completely forgiven and accepted by the Father through Jesus. And now we can joyfully give thanks to the Father.